0: Welcome everyone to the University of Minnesota Extension's IPM podcast for field crops. And today we'll be talking about small grains. This is a topic we actually haven't covered before yet. So I'm kind of excited to have a bunch of folks here who work on the small grains end of things. We obviously have a lot of other things going on in the field right now, but small grains are kind of the thing that are the most active. We're looking at corn and soybeans kind of just in their emergence phase. So I figured it'd be a good chance to talk about what's happening in the small grains world. So today we have Joachim Wirisma, he's an extension professor based out of the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics based out of St. Paul. And then we also have Jared Goplin, he's a regional extension educator who works in forages and small grains based out of Morris, Minnesota. And I'm your host, Anthony Hansen, also working as a regional educator out of Morris. I'm an IPM extension educator, and that is the focus of our podcast is Integrated Pest Management. So welcome to both of you on here. I think Yoka, maybe we'll start off with you. Kind of a general question I have is, you know for me growing up, you know, we had a little bit of small grains on our farm in central Minnesota. And it's kind of tailored off a little bit nearer. The There's still some out there. but for folks who listen to the podcasts that actually don't have much small grains background, how are things looking across the state in terms of what's grown right now and how are those crops looking?
1: It's a little bit of a sad story, and it basically, every single year, I stay longer in my job. The acreage declines further. That's, you know, you'd like to see the opposite if you're trying to make a difference. There's lots of reasons why acreage has, you know, dwindled over time, and we're not going to go into all those reasons. There is plenty of acres, but they're more scattered. And I wish there were more acres because there's an awful lot of reasons if you talk, especially integrated pest management, why diversifying our rotations would make a lot of sense. In a corn-soybean world, opening up that rotation with a small grain makes a lot of sense. Of course, it has to pencil. And small grains, whether that's oats, winter wheat, rye now, hybrid rye, spring wheat or winter wheat all those crops actually have a fair number of pest problems and disease problems that are very much part of the management picture. Using insecticides and especially fungicides is an integral part of managing
0: small grains profitably. Jared, what are you seeing in kind of your neck of the woods? You're not too far off from me. I'm based, at least in my home office, Bruton by Stearns in Pope County right now. You're a little further west and south there, how are the fields looking overall in terms of what you're seeing for just overall crop quality?
2: Yeah, I guess in terms of the way things look right now, we're sitting uh, quite a bit better than the last few years just because we were able to get into the field a lot earlier. Um, in the last three or four years, it's we've just been so wet, uh, we really haven't been able to get the small grains planted until May, which you know is kind of arguably when you should start thinking about switching to corn anyways in this neck of the woods. So from that point of view, you know, we're sitting pretty good. Things look pretty darn nice. Kind of to piggyback off of uh, some of the things Yoakam just talked about, you know, some of the topics we, a lot of times will discuss at our winter meetings is, you know, how small grains are almost a specialty crop, um, especially when you get into Southern Minnesota. And, you know, it really is interesting, uh, a little bit further South for me, but far Southwestern Minnesota, there is a couple of guys that are growing barley. Yokum and I have worked with them some, but just with some of these specialty markets that are popping up there, it get, gives kind of an added reason to, to grow some small grains. You know, in my neck of the woods, there's certainly not a ton where I'm just sitting right near uh, that South Dakota border. And once you get into that Buffalo Ridge, things, you know, do change quite a bit. Precip tends to be a little bit more limiting. Uh, so there historically has been a little bit more small grains, but you know, that being said, it's still competing with corn and soybean, but there is also, you know, a n- number of other issues like water hemp. You know, we've actually got a, a field this year, the little 16 acre field that we planted a wheat because it was a car crash last year for water hemp. So uh, I knew it wasn't going to be very easy in in corn or soybeans, especially with an early planting date for wheat. We figured, heck, it's it's a form of of long term weed control. At least I can guarantee we won't have seed production this year, which hopefully will will get us on the right side, anyways.
0: And that's a good segue into focusing on the best side of things and start off with weed management and understand it's kind of the prime time to spray for many fields right now. So kind of what's the conditions that have led up to that where growers should be thinking about spraying that it's just mostly a timed aspect, uh, growth stage. How is that set up exactly for when people decide when to spray and um, what are they using exactly for what they're
1: targeting?
2: Yeah. So I guess, I don't know. What do you, you say, Yoakum? kind of in that four leaf stage is a lot of times kind of the sweet spot in, in many ways?
1: Yes. You know, wild oats, if you're in Northwest Minnesota, wild oats uh, is still a pretty large foe. And, and it's one of the most competitive weeds that we have in small grains for the simple reason that it emerges at the same time and grows very, very quickly. And so if you want to reduce the impact of competition, because that's really what it is, Uh, you have to get the wild oats under control in that three to four leaf stage of of your crop. Um, The challenge with that is that a lot of your broadleaf weeds are just starting to emerge. But if you time it just right, we can generally get really excellent weed control because very quickly after that four leaf stage, when the wheat crop or the barley or the oat crop gets into that phase where uh, it, it doesn't have stem elongation just yet, but it, it stretches out and gets a little bit more erect, it closes the rows, And that basically stops emergence of any new weeds that are, because most weeds need a light signal uh, to really start germinating. And so three to four leaf is really ideal time to get your weed control, which in the Southern Min is happening right now. I think the earliest planted fields in that third week of April, so April 20th and on, will reach that probably by this weekend in the Southern Valley. And then we just march north and we do wheat control. And that's one of the beautiful advantages and why we can talk about small grains in the corn-soybean rotation. Uh, resistance management of some of these biotypes is possible because we use different groups of herbicides uh, where we have excellent efficacy. So the train wreck that Jared talked about with the water hem, um, that's manageable in small grains. Jared, would you agree?
2: Yeah, and then in terms of the timing too, you know kind of you know that four leaf stage at least here's where we're sitting right now. The lamb's quarters has been emerging. Uh, most of that's still pretty small though. The common ragweed's been coming up, some giant ragweed, and the water hem just started. So, you know, in terms of getting some things applied, the weeds are still very small uh, in terms of diversity of modes of action, you know, you know, one of the big ones, a lot of people will use, at least in this area, you know, things like Bromoxanil that, you know, really need good coverage and, and small weeds to work well, but they work pretty darn well in that situation. So, you know, once the small grains get a little bit bigger then you know, the small grains interfere with coverage too. So it's kind of that uh, sweet spot in some ways. And I think things are going to work pretty well this year you know, a lot of these products don't have residual activity, so it's not gonna control the things that are yet to emerge too much, depending on what you're using. But, um, you know, the water hemp that comes up later underneath that dense small grain canopy probably won't be an issue until you harvest. Then it'll all pop through and we got to worry about it then, but um, it'll at least get us to then. and, And the positive there is any of these bad weeds, they don't produce seeds until, you know, well after small grain harvest typically. So even if they do green up after you combine, uh, you got plenty of time and options to to prevent seed production.
0: So over on the disease side of things, it's you know, across the state. It's been obviously pretty dry. We've been talking about that for how long now, but there's a little bit of rain popping up in places. So you know we can talk a little bit about moisture and humidity. Finally, what's the current risk outlook for some of these diseases, especially on the fungal side of things, where that matters a bit?
1: You're right that on average we've been dry. Despite that. And with the cool conditions, we must have enough dew in the systems and the right conditions that I have reports now of stripe rust in the state. I have confirmed reports of tan spot in the state uh, two weeks ago already, which is relatively early. And I always butcher this, but buckthorn was already, which is the alternate host for crown rust already was showing borulating bisatiae, which gives you the basidiospores that eventually will go to establish crown rust in oats. And so we might think of it as being really, really dry. There's enough moisture that we get enough leaf wetness periods and the right conditions, these little bit cooler conditions that those diseases have taken off or are starting to pop up. It's not disastrous, but if you grow winter wheat and if you grow rye, I would look, especially the winter wheat. The spring wheat, I don't think I would expect to find striped rust yet, even though Jared found it on a single leaf in one of his fields, the, the chances of finding it in winter wheat are greater, and that's a probability function. Rust gets blown up, stripe rust, leaf rust, stem rust eventually all get blown up from southern states everybody always refers to as you know a tornado alley is also the Pixinia pathway. And as those spores land, they need to land on a suitable host. Right now the springweed is even at the four leaf stage, it's a relatively small target for that, that spore to land on a suitable host and then encounter the right conditions to actually germinate and infect that plant. Where if you have a closed canopy, if those spores indeed settle out in that crop, You not only have more surface area with more leaves because the canopy is closed, because of the canopy being closed, you also have a more favorable microclimate to get that leaf wetness period in early mornings for those spores to germinate and then infect those plants. And so it's a risk calculation. And I think I would start with looking indeed in winter wheat for striped crust. If I find it in the bottom of the canopy, we have plenty of control options. There's lots of fungicides that are very effective. And we are in a situation where it's not causing us any yield losses. Uh, Leaf rust, tan spot, stripe rust, uh, crown rust, all these diseases are what I call multi-cyclical, which means that they go to multiple generations within a season. And so having a little bit of that disease in the bottom of the canopy uh, gives me actually still time to spray that fungicide and not as, you know, use an entomological term, reach that uh, the action threshold is, you know, out there before we ever reach an economic threshold. And we can talk a little bit more in detail about that. But I think, you know, now that we have a little bit more humidity in the system and we're getting some higher humidities, I would expect, especially the leaf spotting diseases, tan spot, especially, to very quickly be found in lots of fields. That was actually a
0: follow-up question I was going to have related to the thresholds a bit. Mm -hmm. Just deciding if you're going to go out and treat, obviously, if you can find a little bit in your field, that's not always an indication that you you need to take action quite yet. But how do we decide for some of these diseases what to do exactly? Is it based on percent infestation, percent leaf area, or how is that done?
1: Yeah. So, so what you're looking for is, A, how well it is dispersed in that field. If it's just a here and there, a little what we call foci, another hot spot, corner of the field, here and there spot, it, it probably isn't worthwhile spraying the whole field. If you, however, have a, a spore shower that allowed infections across the whole field in the case of the rusts, then if it's in basically the bottom of the canopy and you reach about that 5% severity and the top of the canopy is clean, the idea is that you, you wanna ultimately keep the flag leaf and the penultimate leaf clean. Those two are your motor for your yield. And so it then becomes a, a timing element or do I have to intervene early to break that disease cycle open so that I delay the onset of what we would call, you know, the exponential phase of the disease development? Or can I just weigh this out a little bit and do that flag leaf application? Because that's really when the flag leaf comes out. And if those top of the canopy is still very healthy, with just a little bit of disease in the bottom, I, you know, I save myself a single application. Because if I go early, and, you know, when you apply that fungicide, any new growth will not get be protected. So if we have additional showers of spores coming in, then that new growth might give us start the disease. And so you have to balance that. And I'm more than willing to, when growers have questions, to help them through that because it's very situational. There is no given when X then Y that is applicable to every single field in in the state. So Jared, sometimes
0: over on the disease side of things, people are wondering what they're seeing out there and it's maybe not always a disease we've had conditions lately whether plants are getting wind whipped sandblasted or just pure heat plants can look odd sometimes so what are people maybe seeing that could be environmental stress that you could easily confuse for disease and kind of how do you distinguish the two of
2: them you know the timing of this question i think is almost perfect with our uh, our summer scouts who will be uh, scouting small grains this spring running around i'd say the first 50 pictures it seems like we get from our scouts are usually some type of sandblasting or uh, herbicide injury or, you know, something else, you know, those little small grains tend to be a little bit uh, vulnerable. Probably my favorite sort of injury that you see is, is sort of this barcoding effect. And, you know, this spring was, was no different than a lot of years where you, know, you have that really sensitive, uh, young vegetation just popping up through the soil surface and that hot, that soil gets really hot on a hot day and you'll get little, little yellow kind of barcodes on that leaf. And, uh, what's the formal name for that, Yoakum? Isn't there a a more technical term? Heat canker. There you go. But I I really like the term barcoding because it, Mm -hmm. you know, when you get repeated events, uh, there were some leaves this year that I saw that I think had four different little barcodes on them. So, you know, it's probably one of my favorite sort of, uh, uh, non-disease type of uh, leaf symptom that you'll see. But of course we have, uh, um, all kinds of other things too, you know, with sandblasting and those types of things. and You know, Joachim, one thing that you hear once in a while about, I think it's more common in winter wheat, is this physiological fleck. How common is that in in, in Minnesota, I guess?
1: You know, it's a genetic, partially genetic thing, and it gets triggered by environmental conditions. Heat and humidity sometimes trigger it. And I don't have a good handle on where I can predict it. I just, when you see it, you'll recognize it. And then the, the question then, of course, is, well... It's very easily, you know, confused with the early onset of, for instance, leaf rust and a, what we would call a R reaction or a resistant reaction to, to leaf rust. It, it looks very similar. And, and the unfortunate thing I have to tell growers then, well, we're going to have to wait a couple of days. It's very difficult to distinguish. It, what you have to then start doing is indeed looking at for patterns in the field. There's going to be differences depending on what the cause is, and so that's part of why you want to scout whole fields and not simply the headland.
2: Joachim, one of the things uh, the other day we talked about was stripe rust. You had mentioned that some of the resistance in varieties doesn't really set up until later on. Um, yeah, you want to go into a little more detail? Or I just find that quite uh, quite interesting. So in terms of making some of these decisions, uh, you know, obviously we're really being looking at protecting flag leaf and you know, on the penultimate leaf, I assume resistance starts to set in by then, or kind of when does that happen?
1: Yeah, so, so it's really interesting. Leaf Leafs, rust, stem rust, stripe rust, uh, the genetics of it is very well understood. We use, in, in all our different crops, we use single genes for resistance, and some of those genes have, in a way, a latency period to them, where as a seedling, they're not very effective. We call those adult plant distances, that when the plant gets a little bit bigger, then they're much more effective. And most of our material has, in the case of leaf rust, a uh, gene called, and it's very prevalent in Minnesota material, called LR34. That's one of those genes that's really an adult plant resistance. And I have to delve back into the literature so, don't, so I don't get misquoted. We have similar systems in the case of stripe rust. So having it seen a little bit now, doesn't necessarily scare me for where Ingmar has a rating of three for stripe rust. If I see some striped rust on it now, when it's basically in the three-leaf stage, depending on the races that we have, might not be detrimental down the season.
0: So this is probably a good stepping stone here. We can get into some other diseases that are vectored by insects. So this is kind of the combination of two pest-causing issues. And I know aphids have been spotted in some areas. I know Bruce Potter and Southwestern Minnesota has had some reports. I know we've heard about some more along Central Minnesota too. So what have either of you been hearing about insects that are transmitting diseases? And is it kind of the time to see those symptoms yet? Or will that be a little bit later in the season?
1: The most obvious one that we can think of right away is barley yellow dwarf virus. And barley yellow dwarf virus is transmitted by a number of the cereal aphids, with. Cherry Oat aphid being the most efficient or effective vector of that virus. I haven't heard of disasters in southern states, southern winnowweed states with any of, of BYDV. Uh, Bruce Potter found English grain aphid, which isn't one of the it's one of the poorer ones actually for transmitting BYDV. But the, the tricky thing is that. If the aphid itself is proliferous, it's one of those words that you can break your tongue over. If if it is proliferous arriving here, it only has to poke once, probe once, and it has transmitted that virus. And so controlling aphids as a way to avoid BYDV is basically not possible. So we generally rely on escape for BYDV because the aphids arrive that are proliferous arrive late enough that we very seldom, if ever, encounter what is the the D in BYDV, which is the dwarf expression, dwarfing symptomology of the virus. If indeed proliferous aphids would land on three four leaf wheat and infect the plant at that point in time there is a very good likelihood that that plant will not get much taller than about 10 to 12 inches and make a head that's about the size of my pinky. I've seen that once in my years now in Minnesota, and that was gone through the records. This was in Southeast Minnesota with an aphid, with aphids that actually arrived April 20th. It was actually a relatively early spring those aphids arrived, infected the earliest seeded crop, and then froze out because we had a killing frost in Southeast Minnesota right after they initially infected those plants. And so anything planted after that cold day never showed any BYDV. It's the earliest, and it's, it's kind of a freak incident. Um, it's one to take note of because it's, it has, as Mark Sheely would call it, that's a singularity that draws your attention. Uh, the interesting thing is that we actually now have a springweed variety called MN Washburn Minnesota Washburn that actually carries the resistance to BYDV.
2: Are the thresholds do they build in some level of risk towards BYDV and other no. other vector diseases or it is just a singular singular threshold?
1: Yeah, it's a singular threshold because the moment that thing lands and probes once you're always behind the eight ball when it comes to BYDV. There is no way to avoid that infection because you, you're not going to intercept the it before it lands. And when they have flown that far, one of the first things they're going to do is run around that leave a couple of times and then probe.
0: That's one of the areas of IPM where when you go back to the concepts of it, it's basically that there's something that you can either predict or prevent from happening. And in this case, yeah, that's, you're mostly not able to do much. So that's something you kind of just accept as what's going on. And like I said, there are some things you can do in terms of planting, trying to avoid the timing of it pretty much. But once the no. plant is in the ground, the aphids are out there feeding, that's pretty much what's done is done.
1: You could, and they do this in winter wheat to really reduce the population, is use gaucho as a treatment, I mean accropriate as a seed treatment to basically stop those. All populations from spreading because they probe that seedling once and then peel over, so they don't have a chance to move to the next plant.
0: So we have other insects out there, and as an entomologist, for me, near and dear to my heart, I always like to cover those a little bit. Get into uh, wheat stem soft fly and then wheat stem maggots as well. Two different pests out there, and for someone like me who are, know, I grew up a little bit with uh, some wheat on our farm and smotes. I never saw much for insects in my neck of the woods in central Minnesota. So I guess my first question is, is where do these insects primarily show up? Are some regional in the state where they show up more in Northwestern fields versus some that might be further South?
1: Let's start with wheat stem maggot. So wheat stem maggot is probably ubiquitous in Minnesota. It, It has a whole bunch of other grasses as hosts. And so you'll often see this on edges of field. And I jokingly refer to these plants always as some Norwegian wheat, because as the crop start to mature, these plants will, will turn white earlier. And you have to do what I call the stem pool test to determine what the cause of it is. So when you start seeing, if you're in the second week of grain fill and you start seeing these white heads in the field and on the edges, especially, what you do is you pull on that on that plant or on that stem. And if that head comes out and looks kind of frayed, chewed on, that's wheat stem maggot. I very seldom, if ever, have seen it over one to 2%. But because they're so, they stand out so bright against that the rest of it is being green. People often overestimate how severe it is. It's, it's just human nature because it just jumps out at you. But you pull those out, that's sweet stem maggot if it's frayed. If the whole plant comes with it, and so the tillers, the other tillers of the same plant come with it, and you then don't see any other damage, you know, that peduncle, the, the top part of the stem doesn't come out, if you see the other tails coming out, what I encourage you to do is actually take your pocket knife out and cut that crown open. And what you often find is a carmine red color and or a really brown inside of that crown, which means either you had phaserium crown rot or common root rot. These days, most likely you'll find phaserium crown rot, which is really signaled by that carmine red color on the crown and on the outside of the crown. If you find that you pull the stem out and you have something that is an absolute razor cut, either at the bottom of the stem or somewhere in between the peduncle and the bottom of the stem and it looks like somebody took a razor blade and made a nice cut, that's wheat stem sawfly. Historically, wheat stem sawfly is a curiosity in Minnesota but for some reason and i none of us necessarily understand why we right around Crookston, it's we've had a hot spot and it seems like this little ink stain is spreading and mostly in a north south direction where we can now find it fields from highway 10 to probably argyle in the valley on both sides of the river and Wheat stem sawfly is a really interesting critter. It, it's known as a dryland pest in Montana, parts of Saskatchewan. And there it's a serious problem. It's Mother Nature's swather is the best way to put it, because it it hides basically its whole life cycle inside the stem. And as a parting shot, just before it builds this little bunker in which it will survive the, the coming winter, it will kind of eat the inside of the stem at the bottom of the plant out and it gets weakened and you only have to have a little bit of a wind event and all those individual stems will lodge. I've seen pictures I've, and I've been in one field in recent years where at least the field edge showed this where the whole crop had gone down just prior to harvest. Up to this point, it's mostly a curiosity and a little bit of a nuisance. I don't think we've seen really economic losses that to speak of, because it's mostly limited to field edges, but it's definitely here and it's spreading. And so I encouraged people in the last couple of winter meetings to drink more coffee during wheat harvest because that forces them out of the combine. And actually look, you can really see wheat stem sawfly because those stems are completely loose. If you start wrapping them around your reel during harvest. And they just pull out. I encourage you to get out of the combine and actually look at that bottom of that stem because if it's indeed a really sharp cut, you have wheat stems offline in that field.
2: I always chuckle with uh, whenever you bring up the white heads because uh, I think every single field day I've ever been at, that's always a question. Somebody looks, there's a couple of white heads shooting up here and there. It's usually usually a wheat stem maggot, and uh, but it is
1: one of the most visual things in the
2: end of June or in
1: July simply because of the way our eyes work. Once you're focused on it, you'll see them everywhere. I wish I was that good at, you know, finding deer during deer harvest, but I have a more difficult time seeing the deer compared to, you know, wheat stem maggot heads that you can spot from a mile.
2: Now we have had a couple of solid stem varieties. How many of you looked at now for for wheat stem sawfly?
1: So what I've been doing, developing resistance because there's no chemical control for wheat stem off, You have, have to rely on solid stem varieties. The challenge there is that's, like I said, Montana varieties, Saskatchewan varieties. They don't like Minnesota. You know, they don't have resistance to fusarium headlight. They don't have resistance to tan spot. So I've been doing basically all the released varieties in a weed stem eye screening. And there are some materials that we think of as not being solid stem varieties that show lower numbers of wheat stem sawfly larvae when we uh, harvest them at the end of the season and look for signs of infection. About five years ago, I think, uh, one of the mysteries got solved in that apparently there's a number of varieties that initially have a pith that reabsorb that pith later during the grain fill period. And so historically entomologists and, and breeders that look for soft fly resistance have always looked at the end of the season if there was stem still had a pit, if there was a pit that was going to be a pretty decent variety for wheat stem soft fly. We now actually have to look a lot earlier and so I actually scored them too late last year. You have to score them basically at the six leaf stage to see if there's a pit in some of these varieties and so I'm really curious to see uh, if some of our adapted varieties actually carry resistance to wheat stem soft fly, purely by happenstance. So we'll see. That will be something hopefully we can talk about this winter.
0: It's kind of curious from both of you, what do you think overall we should be keeping an eye out for as we move closer to harvest period? We're talking about kind of what's happening you know, right now in about you know, late spring. We're going to be transitioning the summer and a little bit almost feels like it some days here coming up with how humid it's getting. But either from the agronomic perspective or IPM, What are the main things you think we need to keep an eye out for this year?
1: If I was that good, Anthony, that I could tell you what we're going to do next week, I wouldn't be talking to you, trust me. You know, this is farming. We'll see what the season bring us. And I wrote an email yesterday to somebody about farming happens while making plants. Very good friend of mine, and I. he always asks, you know, well, how come? I go, luck favors, they're prepared. Give yourself the time to indeed look at those crops. You know, and, that, and, and in southern Minnesota, that's a little bit of a challenge, but source the fungicides, you know, earlier in the season when you still have time. Because the moment you're starting, you need them, it's going to take you two days to find it. Because not all the retailers carry some of these products that we need, uh, for instance, to control stripe rust or crown rust. And that that two days uh, when everything else is going on, uh, is the challenge. You know, scouting
2: is, it would be my biggest thing, you know, keep an eye on things. You can't really, uh, <laughs> have the, the have the magic eight ball, but, uh, as long as you're keeping an eye on things, hopefully we can react quick enough. You know, and that being said, I guess we do have these scouts that'll be running around this summer. If you guys have fields that, uh, folks want us want to volunteer for part of our program, we'd be happy to, to have them stop and, and subscribe uh, to the Crop News blog, we'll we'll be posting any posts on what we're seeing for other diseases, at least to give you a little bit of a heads up on what to, what to be looking for.
0: Well, thank you for both of you for joining today. So this will be basically our kind of our first episode of the main growing season. We've had a couple this winter, just uh, kind of covering some basics, IPM, and other areas. But now we're definitely moving into the growing season, and we'll be covering more topics as they come up here. So hopefully, we'll have more timely episodes for everyone and. The coming weeks, especially as we move into June. I think things will pick up quite a bit more, some of the other areas of IPM. With that, thank you for everyone for listening to the University of Minnesota Extension's IPM podcast for Field Crops.